Let's open the Scriptures to the letter of Paul to the Romans, Romans 3. The subject for the preaching this afternoon is, as mentioned in the prayer, the righteousness that God provides for us in Christ. And the Apostle Paul writes about that here in Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 508. In the Catechism preaching, we're working through the Belgic Confession, and we come to Article 23, in which we confess our righteousness before God. There we confess, we believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein our righteousness before God consists, as David and Paul teach us. They speak of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The apostle also says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we always hold to this firm foundation. We give all the glory to God, humble ourselves before him, and acknowledge ourselves to be what we are. We do not claim anything for ourselves or our merits but rely and rest on the only obedience of Jesus Christ crucified. His obedience is ours when we believe in Him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in drawing near to God, freeing our conscience of fear, terror, and dread, so that we do not follow the example of our first father, Adam, who, trembling, tried to hide and covered himself with fig leaves. For indeed, if we had to appear before God relying, be it ever so little, on ourselves or some other creature, woe be to us, we would be consumed. Therefore, everyone must say with David, O Lord, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. That's as far as our confession goes. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week in Article 22, we took a deeper look at true faith. We saw there that true faith is key a key component of our salvation, something that's absolutely necessary. And yet, we saw that faith is not the thing that actually saves us. Faith is like that IV line. We had that example last week which connects the, the dying patient to the life-giving blood. It's a necessary connection, the IV line or faith, but it's the blood 
that comes to us and brings life, Christ's blood. And as we saw this morning, by faith the Holy Spirit intimately joins us to the Lord Jesus, to His flesh and blood, so that His life, so to speak, gets pumped into our hearts, into our flesh, and transforms us before the eyes of God as if we are without sin, as if we are perfectly righteous. That's the focus of Article 23 now, and it's the focus of the sermon I may preach to you this afternoon. That'll be our, this'll be our theme, stand on the firm foundation of Christ's righteousness. Stand on the firm foundation of Christ's righteousness. It is He who washes you, and it is He who clothes you. The confession began speaking about righteousness in Article 22. You can see it there in the last paragraph of 22. We, we confess that faith is the only instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. And then a sentence later, therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And that thought then carries right on into 23, opening line, we believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein, here it comes, our righteousness before God consists. So in close succession, we have three times our righteousness. We want evidently very much to, to know and to, to find our righteousness. Well, what do we mean by that? Righteousness is one of those words, big word we read in the Bible. I mean, it pops up many times in the book of Romans, so we can't just dismiss it. We hear it in catechism class. We hear it sometimes from the pulpit, but it's the kind of word which might just sail right over our heads. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. What even is that? Would you be able to explain that to a stranger or maybe to your child? And just how big of a deal is it to find and to know our righteousness? Well, to unpack this concept, it may be helpful to start with the opposite idea, unrighteousness. That might be easier to understand. Paul describes this quite clearly in Romans 3, which we read, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. He's describing, quoting from the Psalms, he's describing God's verdict, right? Everywhere God looks among the human race, he sees only unrighteous people. There's nobody righteous. Well, what is he seeing? What are the unrighteous people like? Paul continues with a series of quotes from a variety of Psalms and other passages. He says this in Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And then he wraps it up, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's he describing? Well, beloved, he's describing us, you and me, by nature. Apart from God's 
influence on us. This is us. This is the whole human race. It's the state of humanity. We are, by nature, unrighteous. We have all of these inclinations. We come out of the womb without fear of God in our hearts. We have a selfish tendency. We act by, quite naturally in the way of lying and cheating and even murder. We have envy and bitterness in our hearts. The other day we, we talked about this in one of the catechism classes about how God describes the human race very soberly and quite like Romans 3, God did so in Genesis 6 verse 5. I quote, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that's damning, right? Every intention of the thoughts of every human heart was only evil continually. That was God's verdict. Could it be any worse? Unrighteous. To be unrighteous is to live in rebellion against the Creator. Literally, to not live right with our Maker. Our Maker has His law. He has His standards. And by nature, we are inclined to violate them, to serve ourselves. And that's what makes us unrighteous. And because we are filled with unrighteous desires and deeds, we are also looked upon by God, our judge, as legally unrighteous, as lawbreakers. That's His judgment of humanity. And so we are sentenced with punishment according to God's law. The punishment is eternal death. Paul refers to that in Romans 3, 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world is accountable to God. The verdict is in you, Paul says, you, me, and every human being. We are unrighteous before God. We are condemned to die. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That's our sentence, the whole human race. That's why righteousness is a big deal in Scriptures. What we need most of all is to somehow get rid of this conviction that we are unrighteous before the holy judge, to somehow get ourselves in the right before God, our Creator, to somehow be judged by Him as if we were righteous. And the thought of that seems so, so daunting. It, it isn't even possible. Is there some way for us to make ourselves righteous? Can we change our hearts? Can we change our ways, our thinking? Can we offer to God a sinless obedience which would then be acceptable to Him? Well, Paul tells us very clearly we cannot. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, so you, you can try by works of the law, but then he says, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You can try to obey, but you'll only discover you can't obey perfectly. The truth is we can't get away from our sin, the sin nature that we all have. There's no way for us to get 
rid of that unrighteousness inside, no way to become perfectly righteous in the eyes of God unless we turn to Jesus Christ, you see. That's the big deal here. That's why God sent His Son into the world, so that Christ could be our righteousness for us. The Holy Spirit in Romans 3 teaches us that in verse 21. But now, says Paul, the Spirit through Paul, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here it comes the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We, unrighteous people, are not able to put forward any kind of righteousness, but God gives it to us. He puts forward Jesus Christ. He, Christ, becomes our righteousness. Well, how does that work exactly? For Christ to be our righteousness means that He would have to fulfill all our obligations to God according to God's law. He would have to do right in God's eyes as our substitute. And yet there's more, for we owe God two things. We owe God what He commanded us to do since the very beginning, namely obey His will and live a perfectly righteous life. So that's, that's one duty we have, and it's a, an obligation we owe. The other massive thing we owe is the penalty for breaking that law. The penalty for our original sin in the Garden of Eden and the many sins we've all committed since. In order to be legally justified or declared righteous in God's eyes, the eyes of the judge, that obedience must be offered and that penalty must be paid. There's this twofold debt. Well, let's take the last one first. Does Jesus cover that penalty for us? Well, again, Paul speaks about this in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, you could say made right, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, this is how God does it, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, we've got another big word, propitiation. What's that all about? Well, this is a pretty big deal, same as righteousness. Propitiation means to turn aside or turn away wrath, God's wrath. You see, God's holy and divine wrath against sin, our sin, it, it hangs over the human race because of our sin. Like an axe ready to fall, like a guillotine ready to come down, it hangs there. But when the Son of God became human flesh and became incarnate, when Jesus came and offered His perfectly righteous life on the cross, what did He do? He called down on His own head 
that wrath that was hanging over the entire human race. It was a redirect of the punishment we deserved. Instead of God pouring out His anger on on you and me and the rest of sinners, He poured out His wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ, so that everyone who is connected to Jesus by faith, everyone who belongs to Christ by faith, everyone who is in Christ, who abides in Jesus, all persons that that describes are protected from God's wrath, covered over by the blood of the Lamb. It really is a Passover. If you are in Christ, you're protected. He's your refuge. The wrath can't touch you. God's wrath can't touch you. The penalty has been paid in full, and the judge now accepts you as righteous. That's what Article 23 begins with. We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake and that therein our righteousness before God consists. Therein. In Christ. You see, your righteousness, my righteousness before God is not found in yourself or in myself It's not in your good works. It's not in my good works. It's not in your act of faith, not in my act of faith. It's not in our acts of penance, whatever they might be. Of course, we need faith. We talked about that last week. And of course, we all must do good works out of gratitude, but our sins are forgiven because righteous Jesus absorbed unto Himself all of God's wrath against all of your sins and all of my sins as our substitute. Christ alone constitutes our righteousness. You and I may many times be ashamed of ourselves. We sin. We blow it. We make mistakes. We do stupid things. We have many unrighteous thoughts and words and actions. And we feel ashamed, and we should feel ashamed. We should bring what we feel to God in prayer and admit to Him our wrongs, but do not let the tears you shed over your sins blind you from seeing the blood Jesus shed for your sins to pay for every single wrong, the little, the medium, the big, if there's such a scale, all of them. He is your, my righteousness. And with His righteousness, He washes you clean as if you'd never sinned. The Lord said it through Isaiah already. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 1. 
In God's eyes, brothers and sisters, you are as white as snow. Do you know that? Do you believe that? In Christ, white as snow. That's the comprehensive, complete work of the Lord Jesus for us. Jesus Christ is the reason that God looks upon you in love. Jesus Christ is the only reason God finds you and me acceptable. And because the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is, is spotless and complete and can never be changed or undone, your sins will always be forgiven as you put your trust in Christ. In other words, you'll always be white as snow to your Father in heaven because you're in Christ. He never sees you dirty anymore. And having washed us, He also clothes us with robes of righteousness. This uh, penalty we've been talking about, <clears throat> that's something that we talk about more often in the preaching. It's at the heart of the gospel that Jesus pays the penalty for us. But there's that other side of the debt we mentioned earlier, full obedience to God's law. We don't just need someone to die in our place. Yes, of course, that too. But we need someone to live perfectly a perfectly obedient life in our place. And Article 23 points this out in the second paragraph where we confess we do not claim anything for ourselves or our merits, but rely and rest on the only obedience of Jesus Christ crucified. Here comes His obedience is ours when we believe in Him. So we've got two things here. His death becomes ours when we believe in Him, but so does the obedience of Christ become ours. And this explains why Jesus wasn't just sent to earth in a matter of a single day and then to the cross as our sacrificial lamb. You ever wonder about that? Like, why did the Lord Jesus have to be on the earth 33 years to end up on the cross? This explains why Christ didn't just somehow arrive from heaven as an adult, descended from Adam. No, He had to live a complete human life. He had to start where we start, conceived in the womb, then become a born and, and live as an infant, then a toddler, then a little boy, then a teenager to a mature adult. And in all phases of human life, he had to obey God's law and do so in our place. If all we think of Jesus is how He died in our place, we're missing out on half the gospel message, for He also lived a life of sinless obedience in our place. Hebrews 4, 
for example, mentions this. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. A little bit later in chapter four, 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews says that Jesus had to learn obedience. Not like we do. We have to learn obedience too. We do it through trial and error. We do it through mistakes and sins and falls. But Christ had to learn to obey in the face of temptation. He didn't have that, that inner disposition to, to sin like we do, but temptations came from the outside. He faced trials. He faced tests. The Bible says in Hebrews that he faced every sort of temptation, all the same sorts that you and I face. That doesn't mean every specific possible temptation, but it refers to every kind of temptation. Think of the Ten Commandments. There's only Ten Commandments, but they cover all areas of life, right? So Jesus would have faced temptation in all those same areas of life and more than one. Can you imagine the kind of, of, of things that he was confronted with? He being sinless. We get confronted by sin, and sometimes it, we hardly notice it because we have the sin inside of us, and we're kind of attracted to it. But, but he was a sinless person. Now he's confronted with sin again and again and again. And we know how weak we are, right? those desires that crop up in our minds, the temptations that meet our eyes as you walk down the street and stroll through the mall or scroll through your phone. Think of how you are confronted with temptation. Think of how you give in to temptation. Think of how quickly a word goes off our tongues and like a dagger enters into someone's heart. Or think of how easy it is for us not to do something helpful for our neighbor when it's within our power to do it. How often don't we fail to love our neighbor? How often don't we dishonor our maker with our thoughts and our words and our actions? Our disobedience, our unrighteousness, it just piles up high and higher and, and, and wider and wider. Sometimes we wonder if even the death of Jesus is enough to pay for it all. I mean, our sins are mountainous. Well, brothers and sisters, then it's, it's good to know that not only does Christ's death wipe away all our offenses, but His obedience, all that obedience is transferred to our account so that we are regarded as law keepers. The death of Jesus, it takes away our guilt before God, but God doesn't just leave us with a, a, a clean slate. No, He does more. All of the active obedience of Jesus, all of His righteous deeds from His whole life, all of His keeping of the covenant law as our mediator, as our representative, as our head, all of that gets transferred. It gets added to our account. 
So Jesus doesn't just press the reset button and take us back to the position that Adam was in when he was first created. No, far beyond that, Christ presses the renew button. And by his work, he makes us new. He brings us to a a state of completion, at least in the eyes of God. Christ fulfills our obligation under God's covenant. He brings us into a position or a state of everlasting peace with our Father. He brings us into our eternal inheritance of a new earth with the perfected people of God. He takes us to the goal. He doesn't just leave us at the starting line. He takes us to the goal. When we put our trust in Jesus, in the Lord Christ, it's as our righteousness, it's as if He clothes us in His own robes. It's as if you and I have fully obeyed God's law. That's how marvelous and how full the work of Christ is for us. Revelation 7 describes the followers of Christ this way. Verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Our robes become white in the blood of Jesus. He pays our penalty and hands over his obedience so that we are left standing before the judge fully wrapped, fully clothed in the spotless robes of Christ's righteous deeds. Well, that, brothers and sisters, gives profound comfort when you think about it. You know, when our consciences accuse us of sin or maybe the devil whispers in your ear, you ever have that? Conscience or the devil, hard to know sometimes which is which. You're not good enough, says that little voice. You're not good enough for God. You're too much of a sinner. You're too much of a failure. Your past is too dark. When that little voice, that devil or conscience speaks those kinds of words, how do you answer that? What do you say? Well, you can say something like this. You call me a failure? Yes, I am a failure. I confess that I am a complete and utter sinful wretch in myself. But here's the thing, conscience, devil, By faith in Jesus Christ, I am no longer in myself. My life is hid with my Savior. I am in Christ, and He is in me. He is my Savior. He has paid my penalty. He has given me His righteousness so that He is my righteousness before God. So, devil, take a hike. Conscience, be silent. I know what I am by nature. I'm not hiding it, but I also know what I have become by grace through Jesus Christ, and so I am free. I am free from guilt. I am at peace with my God. I have got nothing to fear from you, devil, or conscience. Article 23 lays this too on our hearts, and we 
We should take this in and drink the comfort it holds, beloved. Last paragraph, this is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in drawing near to God. Confidence. Freeing our conscience from fear, terror, and dread. There is no fear before God for the Christian because Jesus Christ has satisfied the judge's requirements for the Christian. And therefore, I am no longer under condemnation. I am free. I'm free from the shackles of hell, free to serve my Creator in peace and joy today and forever. I can relax in that sense. I've got no judgment hanging over me anymore. Christ took that. And he gave me his obedience. That's the foundation, brothers and sisters. That is the firm, unshakable foundation that you and I and every believer may stand on. So make this your confession today and every day. Go back to it when your conscience catches up with you, when the devil catches up with you. Of course, you repent. And then you come back to this foundation. Let's together help each other stand on this singular, immovable foundation. And then let's walk on together in this life. Arm in arm, following our Savior Jesus Christ as He takes us into everlasting life. Amen.